This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome for another episode of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM, live from the old master-at-arms quarters in the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as Magnuson Park. It's an all-volunteer radio station. There's all sorts of great programming all throughout the week. Um, we're on live every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Pacific time. As far as we know, the only live history radio show about the Pacific Northwest, Cascade of History. Um, if you're listening live, you're probably sweltering in the heat the way I am. I think in the studio, let's see, yeah, it's 79.1 degrees here in the studios. Uh, we don't spend any money on air conditioning. All the money goes into creating quality programming which is mostly produced by volunteers. So try to figure out what that means. And we have a really great show, lots of stuff to get to, um, probably too much, but we're going to fit it all into an hour. Um, we're going to talk to uh, Linda Van Nest from the Neely Mansion. That's a, a historic property down in Auburn. They've got a workshop that are hosting this coming weekend about archaeology. And then um, I was listening to the radio the other day, and uh, let's see, I heard this. Heat advisory in effect from 2 p.m. Saturday to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time Monday. What? Hot conditions with temperatures in the mid-80s to low 90s expected. My first thought was, boy, Nick Allard needs to take a vacation. He sounds like a robot. But then I realized I was listening to NOAA Weather Radio. So um, that, we're going to talk about the, uh, the heat advisory, the hot weather, with meteorologist Ted Beener uh, later in the hour. And then uh, we're going to jo be joined briefly by Hui Pham. He's the preservation director for the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. They have an event coming up next week. Um, we're also going to get to viewer mail. Uh, we did, uh, there, I don't know if you heard the news last week that the Seattle International Film Festival has been able to step forward and take possession of the old Cinerama Theater in downtown Seattle. They're going to be uh, operating again, opening it again. It's a beautiful movie palace. I think the first movie I ever saw there was in the early 80s. It was a revival of Hard Day's Night, and it was fabulous of sound, and everything was terrific. Um, so I was putting some stuff on social media the other day about other cinematic palaces, show places that people want to see brought back. I collected some, uh, some responses from people. We'll hear from those. We'll read a couple of those later in the hour. Um, but before we do, oh, one other thing. I don't know if you remember our, our long deep dive into the history of the J.C. Penney building when it first opened down in, uh, in on downtown Seattle back in 1938. You might remember last week's episode ended with, I think, perhaps the lamest tease so far. By golly, that's it. I, I didn't ask your name. So we've kept you waiting for a week now to find out what the name of this clerk was that this guy from KOMO Radio was talking to 85 years ago as the J.C. Penney at Second Union was having its grand opening. So play that one more time in case you missed it. By golly, that's it. I, I didn't ask your name. Anyway, we're going to find out the name of the clerk. And I think the tease uh, at the end of this week's episode might be even lamer than last week. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. We'll get to that at some point in the show. I have some other really cool vintage audio I hope we can play. I found a terrific old ad from the 1950s for the Totems hockey team. Um, since the Kraken are still in the playoffs, uh, they got Game 7 tomorrow night. We'll, we'll play some vintage Totems hockey audio. And then we have a commercial from a, oh, a once-in-future transportation mode that was uh, almost made a go of it here in Seattle about 20 years ago. And I'll tell you more when we get to that. But before we do that, I want to bring on our first guest. Let me see if I can get the phones to work the, the way it's always a, a great sense of, uh, what's the word? <laughs> suspense when I go to press the button and see if Richard Heisler, can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. Oh, oh, it's, it's just so magical sometimes because usually you know, when you have a phone in your hand, you press the button and there's maybe a slight pause when the person doesn't answer or answers. But here I'm, I have a press a button on the phone, I have to press a button on the mixing board and I have to move the slider up. So I'm trying to do three things all at once with just two hands. So when I actually hear the other, the guest's voice, 
I just always have this deep sense of relief. And I almost, my mind just goes blank, though, for what we're going to talk about. But you, you're with a group called, you're called, called Civil War Seattle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, group is probably an overstating. It's just me. So, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's the work of multiple people sometimes. And it may seem like a team, uh, but it is just me. That's my uh, public history project, I guess you would say. Uh, and then that's expanded out into um, what I've formed a, a business called Seattle History Tours. So it's kind of walking tours of different historic locations. Uh, again, it's just me, so the team uh, is is overworked and underpaid uh, <laughs> doing that. But that's, that's kind of so. So all of that sort of falls into the, the whole under the Civil War Seattle umbrella, I, so to speak. I think that's great. I mean, there's so much local history is preserved and shared and saved and celebrated because one person, you know, initially cares enough about it to do something about it. And there's just, there's plenty of other people. I mean, there's plenty of people who've studied Seattle's history in terms in terms of how it relates to the Civil War of the 19th mm-hmm. century. But you've sure. taken this this sort of this very active approach and created these tours. And you sent me a message it was a, a couple weeks ago about a pretty ambitious project you have that's coming up um, not next weekend but Memorial Day weekend on all three days of Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, yeah. So, what what where my work kind of picks up really is just after the end of the Civil War. So, generally, what I deal with is is kind of relating how the histories of literally thousands of veterans that that wound up living here in Seattle are embedded in our local history, um, and it's so it's kind of their tales on the battlefield, but their lives here in Seattle. So that's kind of why the it gets into the Seattle angle of the Civil War uh, history. So on Memorial Day is what I like to do, and I've done this at different cemeteries over the past couple of years, is to offer a tour on Memorial Day of the fellow Seattleites who were the Civil War soldiers who made the Civil War happen, for better or for worse, yeah. depending on what side you were on. <laughs> um, and I, I just found that people often couldn't make it on Memorial Day itself. So this year I thought, you know what, I'm going to do the right things for these veterans, and I'm going to make the scheduling availability wide open between Saturday and Monday. So two time slots on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and Sunday night Hmm. uh, to do this tour at the Grand Army of the Republic Cemetery. So that gives anybody that wants to come the opportunity, whether it's two people or 40 people, I'll be there, and you'll get Mm -hmm. the same. Okay, and we'll, we'll put information on the Cascade of History Facebook page with links to your stuff, because I know the, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic Cemetery, is on North Capitol Hill. But before, before we go much further, for someone who doesn't know what the Grand Army of the Republic or GAR was and why they had a cemetery in Seattle, but what's, why, why do we have a, GAR, a Grand Army or GAR cemetery in Seattle? Yeah, so the Grand Army of the Republic was kind of the preeminent national-level organization for Union soldiers of the Civil War. Um, it's, it's often conflated to be a political party. Uh, it really wasn't. It was just a, sort of a fraternal organization and structure like the Elks or the Knights of Pythias or the, that kind of thing uh, when those organizations were so popular. But their concern was to be by and for veterans of the conflict. Uh, their motto was... was Fraternity, charity, and loyalty. And so that kind of covers everything that they did. It was a membership organization. So it, if you were a veteran, Union veteran, it didn't just mean you were a Grand Army man. You did have to pay dues. You did have to be a member of the, of the local post, they called them. Uh, so fraternity is pretty self-explanatory. Lo- loyalty was their obsession with passing on patriotism. That's why we have Memorial Day. It was specifically uh, turned into a national observance by this organization. Hmm. But the charity part is why we have the cemetery. So there were fierce advocates for pensions for old soldiers, because there was no Veterans Administration. There was nothing for these men. They would get pensions if they were an amputee, perhaps, or a widow of a soldier right after the war. Hmm. And they also felt the need to help care for those that needed help, indigent indigent soldiers, aging and sick soldiers. Uh, they formed soldiers' homes. We have two of them that are written into the state constitution in 1889 by the efforts of the war veterans that were part of the Constitutional Convention. And then cemeteries. So any veteran, whether you were a Grand Army man or not, was given a proper military burial with honors. 
so they wouldn't get lost. Wow. And we so it's like the national cemeteries on battlefields. It's it's that sort of thinking, and it it started this, this the GAR cemetery that we have on Capitol Hill has begun in 1897. There was a smaller version of it that began in 1884 in Lakeview Cemetery. It was inspired by the fact that they had found that there were multiple former Union soldiers who were buried anonymously in the Potter's Field down in Georgetown. And they said, we can't stand for this. We have to create a, a cemetery so they can they can be properly honored and, and cared for in, in perpetuity. Hmm. So that's where it has its roots. And then you know, the, all the traditions of military cemeteries and everything that comes from that generation uh, is it kind of manifests itself through these these local things like that. Interesting. Far removed from the battlefield, but it is, you know, so there's nobody that died during the war that's buried here. These are all just men who, were, who had fought during the war and then lived here later. Yeah, and it's interesting because because there were none of those organizations that you mentioned, you know, no Veterans Administration, no set pension for retired or, or you know, in soldiers or whatever. It's almost mm-hmm. like that Grand Army of the Republic organization was, I mean, there's really no equivalent today. There's lots of different veterans organizations that are private or that focus on one specific one specific conflict maybe or one specific, you know, I don't know whether it's disabled American vets or whatever, but it, seem, it yeah. seems like from what you're describing it, the Grand Army of the Republic would have, would have been a pretty big force. I mean, it would have been you know, just the, the inertia, momentum required for that to emerge as a private organization and do stuff like buy real estate and, you know, conduct funerals yeah. for their members and stuff. That's like, that's pretty amazing that that sort of develops the way it did and kind of organically in the 19th century like that. Um, yeah, yeah, there's, I don't think there's any modern equivalent, yeah, really. It, and, um, and, not the, other than the government itself. And for the most part, these are all union vets, right? But you said they – and I think you – in your tour, you're going to talk about how there was some sort of cooperation at a certain number of years past the Civil War. You do get the union vets and the Confederate vets just sort of – they don't exactly fall into one one single organization, but there's a lot more cooperation. Sure, yeah. There's the, – the, all told, I think at its peak in Seattle and King County, there's probably about 3,500 union veterans that live here. About 14 to 15,000 statewide. Statewide Confederates are probably about 400, with about 150 here wow. in, in King County. So that number already skews everything about their their relationship and impact and things. Um, it's complicated stuff for sure. You know, there's men who who renounced slavery and were pro-reconstruction from the day the war ended and they wanted racial equality these are confederates I'm speaking of and then there's also men who who had had 75 people enslaved on their on their uh plantations in the south so it's a, even among that small number it's very complicated but we do see that starting in about 1891 they have public events reunions on the 30th anniversary of the firing of fort sumter there's a big uh, reunion that take place. So I'm thinking of building on Fourth and Pike or Fifth and Pike, mm-hmm. where Union and Confederate veterans and they get on the stage and they speak together, and uh, it trickles in slowly. Um, but by the turn of the century, we start to see them together uh, in in these formal settings that are Civil War related. Their families and socially and business are very intertwined from the start. There's a lot of them that their families are married, Union and Confederate veterans, children are married to one another, and uh, their business, they're in businesses together, they're in government functions in Seattle together as, you know, county prosecutor and civil engineer and the police chief are Confederates working side by side with Union veterans as well, hmm. holding offices. So it's, it's they they had to get together in that regard here, because they're, they're, they're both here, they're both kind of got to coexist, really. The sectional aspects of it are greatly reduced here in Seattle, in my, my interpretation of it. Yeah, it would seem like if the Confederate guys were trying to do stuff on their own, it would have, would have been a pretty small, you know, it would have been like just the numbers, just by the sheer numbers, it would have been a, a pretty small, yeah. you know, occurrence. That wouldn't have been a big event. Um, now, these, this, the notion of the, the Grand Army of the Republic contributing to the elevation of Memorial Day as a national holiday— yeah. What's when's the first time that we see Memorial Day really celebrated in earnest here in the Northwest or in Seattle? Uh, well, in the Northwest, so so the first Grand Army National observa- observance of Memorial Day took place in 1868. So a little a little later than you may think. There's 
these informal community level things, but it's 1868 where they kind of bring it all together and they have the first one in D.C. In Portland in 1871 is the first observance of it in the Northwest. Uh, the invitation goes out to veterans from Oregon and Washington. So, of course, veterans probably from Vancouver went across the river, but they're possible they went from Olympia or, or, or elsewhere. That's kind of the first regional one. We didn't have a Grand Army of the Republic organization or post in Washington Territory or Seattle until 1878, so hmm. 15 years almost after the war. And in 1879, we had our first uh, citywide formal observation of that day here. Um, and it's pretty interesting reading back through this. It was very, very different in 1879 than, than you know, of course, how we see it now. But even over the years, as the veteran population grows and, and things change, it evolves dramatically. So those first ones in 1879 are very mournful and funerary um, and, and solemn in, in their remembrance of those who had died during the war. Hmm. And then it kind of becomes more about the veterans who lived here who died. So it kind of more family gets involved, more patriotism kind of bubbles to the surface rather than uh, this this, like I said, funerary kind of aspect of yeah. early months. And, and Seattle's a pretty small town in 1879. I think it's something like fewer than 4,000 people. So Yeah, I, there was only only a, about 75 veterans that lived in the city in 1880. Okay. So there, there, it's a small thing, for sure. There, there's a small number in a small city or town at that point, really. But does it capture the attention of the entire town when they do that, even though it is only 75 people because oh, it's such yeah, a small no, town? No, no, no. Yeah, the, the, the people thronged to the streets. I mean, it was. they said there was a couple thousand people for that first one. Huh. Uh, businesses closed. Flag, flags are at half-mast. The businesses are clearing all the barrels and boxes and stuff off the sidewalk so people can can walk by. And, and it was really from the very first day the citizenry of Seattle was immensely supportive of it. And is there a time, I mean, could you point to a time sometime in the last, oh, I can't do the math with a microphone in front of my face, but since 1879, did that, um, that sort of post-Civil War observance of Memorial Day, did it peak at a particular time where, like, there's still enough guys left alive and people left alive who have memory of the conflict? And it's, it has yeah. A, yeah, is there a peak, sort of peak year? I think, so there was, there was some veteran in participating from 1879 until 1947. 19, so 1947? Wow. Yes. Iram Gale lived until 1951. In the last, <laughs> he marched, he walked in the parade in 19, when he was 99 years old in 1946, <laughs> and then they drove him in 1947. Uh, so the tail the on that is long, wow. for sure. But I think the peak is probably around 1912 or 13. Okay. Um, because that's 1905 is when I've seen sort of between the Grand Army histories and the census records and things. That's, that's about the peak. Yeah. when there's about 2,000 veterans that lived in the city. And then from then, that point, I think it's just declining numbers from there. And then it gets filled in with veterans of World War One, And so the, the, the Memorial Day continues to grow until World War Two, But the number of Union soldiers really starts to probably decline after the mid-19-teens. Yeah. Slowly but surely, they can't they can't replenish those numbers. I, I guess... uh, but 1912 and 13 were, were enormous Memorial Days in Seattle, both. And was that in the middle? I know there's some. There's a at one point uh, where the Confederate veterans and the Union veterans unite against the what is it? It's in the labor struggles on the May Day stuff in the early 20th century in Seattle. Yes, they they with the depends which account you're reading. Sometimes it's anarchists, communists, socialists, foreigners, wobblies, whatever. <laughs> Any, anybody in that category, uh, the the veterans of the Spanish-American War and the Civil War were both vehemently opposed to these people. And in May of 19, May Day of 1912, there was a big scuffle that broke out because a Spanish-American War veteran tore the red communist flag off of the flag uh, pole that was leading this procession down 4th Avenue. Huh. And they protested by throwing the American flag on the ground and stepping on it and spitting on it and then fist the police got involved and 
so the city went kind of nuts over this. Um, it was by far the most patriotic of of Memorial Days because that, I think that's where it flips from this full-throated patriotism from this sort of more mournful kind of thing. Yeah, uh, was that year, and the Confederates came out vocally and. And they said, you know, we denounce this. We stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder with our union comrades, and, and, and we're one united nation under one flag. And if you don't respect that, and we have your back completely. Um, and, mm-hmm. and when they were in the, they, they had been in the parade for about six years, the Memorial Day parade at that point, the Confederates, mm-hmm. um, as a body. They had been participating singly, a couple of them here and there since the 1880s. But 1912 is when they, they, the city, you know, there's accounts of, of cheering and, and, and screaming people on the sidewalk. And when the Confederates come by and then the Union soldiers come by, it's, it, things really change that year. Um, and then we have the Gettysburg reunion of 1913, which, again, really cemented that, that like, oh. uh, handshake across the bloody chasm between the Union yeah. and the Confederates. So strange that, that their, their joint disdain for... You know the 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 communists and anarchists and socialists and whatever is that they didn't like. Um, it really does seem to have drawn them together, and they stay much more harmonious from that point until until they they really start passing away. Well, I mean, modern people point to the fact that we need like an alien invasion to unite people now against a, a common enemy. Um, all right. Well, I'm sure there'll be tons more great stories like this on these tours you're giving uh, two times yeah. a day, Memorial Day weekend, what, 10 o'clock yeah. and noon, and then 7 p.m. on Sunday evening for a Twilight tour. Yeah, that one, you know, I had great experience when I was a kid at Gettysburg, and they did these evening campfire ranger talks on the battlefield. Nice. And I thought, man, you know, that might be a fun time of day to go up there. Let's see if anybody shows up and, and does that. So it might be just me sitting there, but, but a lot of people want to come. <laughs> no, I, I highly recommend the tour. Richard Heisler from Civil War Seattle, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. We will put that information there on the Cascade of History Facebook page. And thanks for joining us on the show. You came on our live show. Or it's always live, but you were on our show at Burgermaster last yeah, December. Yeah, I was so. disappointed. I don't get a burger out of the deal. <laughs> so i got to go. i got to drive out and you'll get one now, I guess. It's pretty hot out there. All right, Richard Heisler, thanks for joining us on Cascade right. of History. Have a good night. Thank you, Felix. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Richard Heisler from Civil War Seattle, and we'll put information about the tours he's leading all Memorial Day weekend at the Cascade of History Facebook page, which if you haven't liked already, you should. Get the latest updates on guests that are coming up, and we post all sorts of other stuff there throughout the week as well. Okay, well, it's time to play uh, episode 11 of our exciting dive back into 85-year-ago history, 1938, of the J.C. Penny Grand Opening from KOMO Radio back in 1938 on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Mrs. Greenman, we're very much indebted to you because this is the last quest of the, of the quest we started up on the fifth floor, and we'd hate to come down to the basement and not find what we were looking for. Uh, Bob, of course, played a joke on us upstairs in the hat department. It wasn't there. It was in the window somewhere. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to do a bit more whisking. And this time we're going up to the fourth floor again for our final interview and our last look into the new J.C. Penny store. Well, Bob, we're back on the fourth floor again. And uh, as we walk down this very ship-shaped corridor past uh, your new main offices where the girls that work on the comptometers and the various machines, and as we approach Mr. Mack's office for his interview, the interview we've been looking forward to during the broadcast, I wonder, we know all about these things now, we've seen them from the stock room to the basement floor, but we're wondering just how do you manage to keep the public at large? So through our advertising, of course, perhaps we could go by the advertising department on our way uh, to see Mr. Mack. So would it be possible to get easily from the advertising department of Mr. Mack's office? Yes, Mack's just right through this door. All right, we're walking through a door now, walking past a young lady who is typing fast and furiously, and over here at an easel-like looking desk with many layouts and the like is a gentleman standing whose name, as I recall, is Roe. Is that That's correct? Right. His name, if I recall, is, I think he said Roy. I couldn't really tell for sure, but we'll have, we'll have to wait till next week to find out what happens. I think there's only one more installment left that I can squeeze out of that ancient 1938 J.C. Penney downtown Seattle audio. Going to have to find some other big, long piece like that to carve up and use for these little installments like this. I get a kick out of doing the little serial installments. I hope you do as well. Anyway, and um, 
maybe at some point we'll play the entire 20-minute show just from start to finish so people can appreciate the whole labyrinth of that building. All right. Well, coming up next here on the show, I want to bring in Linda Van Nest from the Neely Mansion Associates. Let's see if we can get her on the phone. Linda, can you hear me? I can hear you. Ah, Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. I reached out to you guys because I saw that there's, uh, first of all, you're with Neely Mansion Associates. Is that the name of the nonprofit? Uh, Neely Mansion Association. Association. I'm sorry. Okay. And uh, but you and I have known each other since I think about 1994 or five when we were on the King County Landmarks Commission together. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Long time. Yeah, and I had a couple classes at the University of Washington with your daughter too. So right around that same time. So ah. I, I was trying to think if I, I couldn't remember if I met you or your daughter first. I think I met. I think I might have met your daughter first. But anyway, old home <laughs> week here at uh, Cascade of History. So. Um, Neely Mansion is in Auburn. For someone who's never been there and doesn't know what it is, what's kind of tell us what the Neely Mansion is. Sure. Uh, the Neely Mansion is a Victorian farmhouse from 1894, and uh, it's a National Historic Site. Um, what we do out there, basically our mission statement, is uh, we restore and maintain the mansion. We have a 1930s uh, Faroba, or Japanese bathhouse, which we have restored. We also have another building on site. Uh, it's a farm shed from the 1940s that was used by Filipino families that lived there. Um, what we're also trying to do is to interpret this heritage and history of the diverse pre- people who lived in the Green River Valley uh, from those earliest days of the Coast Salish all the way through the immigrant farming area. So we, we call ourselves, and our motto is, diverse cultures, one unique place. See, and that's cool. We talk about this this topic a lot on this show because I always remember when I was a little kid going to the old Marymore Museum at Marymore Park down in Redmond at uh, at Marymore Park when I was, you know, elementary school, they would haul us down there every year. And we'd get that sort of standard, you know, this is early 1970s. There'd be a nice museum volunteer who would hold up an old metal flat iron, you know, they had to heat on the stove and there's other, you know, a butter churn and that sort of stuff. And there was very little mention, if anything, I can't remember. I mean, I know there was archaeology work going on for indigenous stuff there at Marymore back in the 60s and 70s. But in terms of the story they were telling the kids, it was very much like the pioneers that built this house, you know, and here's they had a butter churn and they had this, you know, they, they beat the dust out of a rug with, the, you know, there's sort of this, it was it, for the time, you know, we didn't know any better. It was it was very much focused on the, you know, the great white European people coming to this area. And I love what you guys are doing because you're telling all the stories that you can because that's that's far more interesting. There's so many more stories to tell than just the story of, you know, the building of a mansion. I mean, the, the, that land is obviously has been there for thousands of years. So that, that sounds great. When did you guys make that shift? And why do you think you made that shift? Well, um, let me just say we, we started out because the mansion was in terrible condition about 1983. Okay. And uh, I, I noticed a thing in the paper that said, you know, we're going to tear this thing down mm-hmm. or we need to get together and do something. And at that time, I had time and to do such a thing, and I, I went out and I, I, I met the other people that were interested, and we started the Neely Mansion Association. And um, at first, it was restoring the house, and we didn't know the history. So it's one of those uh, peeling the onion things. You know, the more we got into it, the more we found out who lived there, and it wasn't just the Neelys. It was a whole bunch of people that lived there. And, of course, the, the Native Americans that were there for millennia and we're right there on the Green River, so uh, there's a lot of salmon fishing and things mm. going on. Now, so, I, I, you're probably too humble to admit this, but are you are you the person who saved the Neely Mansion? Well, I, I, I never would say that. <laughs> I mean, it, it's but, always a group project. There's so much to do, and bless a lot of those women. I'm going to say it's women. It was mostly women. Now we have a couple of gentlemen on our board, but... Uh, it was women, and I'll tell you, some of them are gone now. And yeah. uh, they gave a lot of time and effort and energy to the project, and um, you know, I think it's turned out okay. No, it's great because that. So that's forty years ago that you got involved. You're you're reading the paper. You're a community volunteer, and you you see something that you care about, and you get involved and make a difference. That's great. That's more people need to do that. And you guys set a good example. And I don't want to not talk about the Neelys. Who give us the sketch of who the Neelys were? Uh, well, it was Aaron Neely who built the mansion, and he actually was a second-generation pioneer, if you would. Uh, his father, David Neely, and mother, uh, 
came across on the Oregon Trail, and they got here about 1854, uh, went out to the what they call the White River area then, which is much more up toward Kent, and uh, they were on the river up there. Uh, they wound up with, I think it was like 320 acres, and uh, that's where Aaron grew up because he was six years old. He was on that wagon coming across. And what he did in the end was, came down to Auburn when he grew up and he put together 180 acres himself and uh, eventually got to a place in 1894 that they, they built this mansion. Huh. And so not to dwell on the, the, the sad part of the story, but what had happened to it to become so decrepit by 1983 that this volunteer effort was required to rescue it? Uh, basically, you know, the Neelys uh, loved the house. They built it and they designed it, the whole thing. But they really only lived there about 10 years. And uh, it was a farmhouse. It was way outside the city at that time. And, uh, you know, it was kerosene lanterns, and you had to use the outhouse and all that. And I about now, I'm going to say it was about 1902 that uh, the Neelys left the farmhouse. They retained all the property. But they left the farmhouse, built another house in town. And you can imagine there was electricity and there was plumbing. You know, <laughs> we're talking, right? So uh, they they held on to that property, actually, through the family until we got in in 83, and uh, they leased it. Okay. So that's, that's how it came to be in bad shape, because through the years, no money was really put into the mansion. The many families that came and lived there, you know, they they lived there, and then they would move on, and somebody else would come in, and, of course, they didn't own the house. It was still Neely's property. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. So that's, that's great. It's great you guys stepped in 40 years ago. So um, now part of the part of what you're describing in terms of interpre- understanding and searching for interpreting all the history around there, not just the, you know, the white European settler history, that is what's led to this archaeology workshop, public archaeology workshops, coming up next weekend. Yes, that sure is. And uh we're excited about it. We really wanted to do an archaeology dig if we could get somebody to uh, come out and help with it. And gosh, we we were real enthused and uh, gotten uh, a hold of uh, Phil Letourneau. Mm-hmm. And he, he is the King County Historic Preservation Program archaeologist. And uh, so he said, yeah, he, he thought it was a great idea. And next thing you know, he was talking to some of his other archaeologists that he knew. And uh, they grew. So now we have four archaeologists coming out. <laughs> and and so, so what, will, what will people be able to do if they come to these workshops next weekend? What will they see? Well, uh, what they're going to do is uh, Phil is going to go ahead and give uh, information about the Green River Valley and the archaeology of it. He's going to give tours uh, of the dig that's going on there. And... Um, People can see all that going on. Also, there'll be handouts for all the public to see, and they can see the dig site. Um, but part of this really is a field tech training uh, for people that are interested uh, in becoming uh, workers in the architectural or archaeological field. And uh, there we have uh, Brandy Rink from King County Park. We have Tom Ostrander and Katie Wilson from ESA, and they're going to do the field test part. So it's going to be fascinating, I think. Now, so you've already been doing some archaeological digs there, and tell me a little bit about that. Well, we, we had a dig back in 2015. Uh, if you recall, I did say something about uh, we have a Japanese bathhouse on site that yeah. we have stored. Well, in order to restore it, first we had to move it off its uh, placed by the mansion there uh, because we wanted to pour a concrete pad. Now, being a National Historic Site, uh, if you want to do any kind of disturbance like that and then put a permanent cover on, you have to have somebody come in and do a dig. So we had uh, Laura Lee Hudson back in the day. She came in and did a dig with a number of other people, and they walked off with like five bucks of material that they found. Uh, Fantastic stuff. So one of the things that's going to happen actually on uh, the weekend is 
some of that stuff is coming back and they're going to be cataloging it. So people will get the chance to see how that's done. Now, wait, what were the kinds of things that were found? Oh, let's see. There was um, a car license plate from 1920. <laughs> 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 lots, of, lots of crockery, of course, and glass <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, a dime that was, I think it was about the 1880s. Wow. Um, and just, you know, all sorts of things. I, I remember there was something like a little iron box, and we were all excited. We thought, oh, right, treasure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as they worked and they dug it out, it turned out to be like uh, the, uh, they have on these old wood stoves, you know, um, iron types of and steel types of boxes where you put your coal. And stuff. It was something like that. <laughs> Now, um, so so people will get to see some of this material and watch it be cataloged by professional archaeologists if they come to one of these workshops next week. Yeah. Oh, Katie that's Wilson, cool. I think it's going to do that. Wow. Um, yeah. I, 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 we should probably explain a little bit about the Japanese bathhouse, what it is and why it was there in the first place. Uh, well, you know, uh, in the Japanese tradition, especially in Japan, and then when people immigrated to, to the U.S. and they were on the farms and even in the cities, there's one in the city, um, they, they would build a, a bathhouse. And a bathhouse was like, uh, they had a faroba, which is the bathhouse, and then they had the ofuro, which was the tub. They'd have a tub in there and the, the water would be warm and they would soak almost like a spa tub. And uh, they would do that mostly if they could every day after the, the day was over and they have tired muscles. It's been a long day. And uh, what we've been told is that they kind of go in order, uh, you know, dad first and down the line. Hmm. Uh, the tub that we have is a wooden tub and it has a metal bottom. Hmm. And uh, you go outside of the Faroba and you go under and they, they build a fire underneath. Ah, that makes perfect sense. Wow. Yeah. And and people say, well, don't they get burned? Well, here's the deal. They they would have almost like a, a plank raft yeah. in, in the tub. So huh. you jump in there and get on that plank raft, and, of course, it would go down, but uh, it would keep you from getting burned. Very cool. Now, is any advanced registration required to come to these workshops next weekend? Yes, actually, uh, we do require reservations. Um, because space is limited. Okay. Uh, now, and, I'll put stuff at the Cascade of History Facebook page, but is there a website okay. people can go to directly that has a short address, or should it be easier just to put that on the on the Cascade of History page? Um, let's see. Well, we can uh, direct them to our website, neelymansion.org. Got it. But, okay. But the fastest and the best way to, to get into this <laughs> is just to call. Oh, okay. And, uh, the number is 253-927-4250. And I have to say that Friday is full. Oh, wow. So Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. So we do have Saturday, and on Saturday we have a 10 a.m. session and a 12.30 session. So okay. if anybody's interested, you know, give us a call and we'll sign you right up. It's free. Right on. Yay. That's great. Well, Linda Van Ness, it's really nice to talk to you. It's been a few years since I've bumped into you, but I'm sure I'll see you at one of these uh, historic uh, local King County kind of events one of these days. And uh, <laughs> love to have you back on the show sometime and talk about some of those other layers of history at the Neely Mansion and the environs out there. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History and good luck with those workshops. And I'll post that phone number and all that information at the Cascade of History Facebook page. And uh, I'd love to have you back and hear how it went and see some pictures of those uh, those those dimes and those uh, license plates and the and the furoba. Fer, Pronounce it for me again. Furoba. <laughs> say it one more time. It's furoba. Furoba. Okay, very good. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Good night, Linda. So long. Bye bye. Night. Bye bye. Linda Van Ness with the Neely Mansion Association. Uh, and the Neely Mansion is definitely worth checking out, especially for those workshops next weekend on so Space Available on Saturday. Uh, all right. Well, in just a moment, we're going to talk to Ted Beener about the uh, heat advisory we've all been living through here in the Seattle area for the last, uh, I guess, since 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon and through 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Um, but I want to uh, go to the mailbox for a second. Oh, yeah, look. 
<laughs> Not exactly viewer mail, the way I like to get letters when they, when they come in, but it's, uh, this is some comments. I asked people which, if you could be the Seattle International Film Festival, and uh, like they have been able to, they've taken possession now of the Cinerama in downtown Seattle. It's going to be reopening at some point in the near future. Congratulations to SIF on their festival this year, on, on that great announcement. Tom Mara, their relatively new director, an old radio guy from KEXP. Anyway, um, so I, I posed a question. If you could uh, bring back one other, some other old movie show places, which would you suggest? And there's a couple I want to read here. Um, John Tracy said the Orpheum was the best of the late great departed downtown palaces. And that was on Fifth Avenue at Stewart. Uh, with apologies to the Music Hall, Music Box, Coliseum, and a host of others. This is a no-brainer. Uh, let's see. Jonathan Burchard, or Burchard says, The UA Cinema 150, that was on 6th and around uh, Lanchard, I think. Best sound system at the time, curved screen, vertically lifted curtains, saw 2001 there, and Return of the Jedi, plus a few 70-millimeter double features as a teenager. Janet Way says, Seven Gables Theater was a beautiful small theater, loved the elegance and quaint quality. Uh, Dars Schweigert says, Kenmore Drive-In. Spent many Friday and Saturday nights there. Not sure how many movies I actually saw, but lots of good times while watching. LOL. Okay. This is a family show, Dars. Thanks for sneaking that one past us. Okay. Um, Jessica Staden says, Harvard Exit. Love the lobby. That was where I learned to love constant comment tea. Also, the Harvard Exit was where I first saw so many impactful movies. Lion in Winter for a start. And Charles Tamara says, the Apple Theater on Boren, because it's the last place I ever sat with a group of strange men. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, yeah, no, one's, no one mentioned the Embassy Theater, as far as I know, the old uh, adult theater down on 3rd and uh, Union, right around the corner from the post office grocery where I used to work uh, near Captain's Nautical Supplies down there. Anyway, great list of, uh, great list of uh, theaters people like to see brought back, coming through. The viewer mail function here on Cascade of History. Well, okay, um, I promised we would play, we're going to play some back-to-back -back audio here. We're going to hear our, this is some old hockey audio from uh, 1959, I think. Um, Bill Shonley is the announcer, and he just passed away recently. He's in his 90s. He was the voice of the uh, Seattle Pilots for their one season. And uh, then also went on to become the voice of the Portland Trailblazers. But early on, he was doing totem, Seattle Totems hockey. So this is a little Seattle Totems hockey spot. And then, and it's not complete because it says you're going to hear from the coach, but we don't hear from the coach. It's like a, it was like a, a piece of production audio they would use for a live thing back on KAYO radio. So we'll hear that. Then we'll hear a commercial for the late, great, mysterious uh, transportation system, which almost appeared about 20 years ago, and that's uh, courtesy of our good friend Arthur Allen. So we'll start with hockey and then with the monorail. Good evening, everybody. This is Bill Shonley. The Seattle Totems are on their second and final swing throughout the Prairie Division. As the Western Hockey League season begins its second half, the Totems are on the rise for the top spot, and these games loom most important. Bob Murray in the Doghouse Restaurant at 7th and Bell in downtown Seattle bring you Seattle Totem Hockey on this station throughout the year. And here now is the coach and general manager of the Seattle Totems, Keith Allen, reporting on tonight's Prairie Game. Isn't that cool that Seattle Totems hockey coverage on KAYO was sponsored by the Doghouse Restaurant? How neat that the Doghouse was actually doing advertising uh, 63 years ago. That kind of blows me away. All right, let's uh, hear our next little bit of audio. And this is, again, thanks to our buddy, Arthur Allen. Imagine you are not in your car, sitting and waiting and sitting and waiting, trying to get to work downtown or Belltown or Pioneer Square. Instead, you're above the traffic, being carried to your destination effortlessly at up to 50 miles an hour in the new monorail. Imagine that when you get there, you won't be spending more time looking for parking because your car is already parked at home in your garage. Imagine that later, when you're tired and ready to leave the city behind, you can, easily. No waiting an hour to avoid traffic or trying to decide what route is less backed up because there is no traffic at 40 feet up and you'll be home within minutes. The imagining is over. The Seattle monorail is on its way and it's going to change the way Seattle gets around. So soon, you won't have to imagine how much easier life will be when it comes to getting places. You'll know. Imagine that. The Seattle Monorail, on track to break ground this fall. 
Yeah, uh, the imagining is over on the Seattle monorail. Again, thanks to Arthur Allen for sending in that priceless piece of audio history. Um, I think I mentioned, we, Mike Lindblom from the Seattle Times was on the show last week. We were talking about the, uh, you know, we actually broke the news. <laughs> as far as local radio goes, I think we broke the news that the bus tunnel was open to normal operations again um, as of last Monday um, after that uh, historic clock swapping incident down there where they uh, poked a hole in the roof of the tunnel. Um, anyway, uh, it was, Arthur was inspired by that to send to send that along, so I'm really glad he did because I, I think I'm, I talked about it last week, but there was so much, um, so many years of work locally, like in terms of uh, that Seattle monorail authority condemning land, you know, buying property, um, buying out real estate along the way. I think the, the re- you know restaurants, longtime popular restaurants, had to sell their property because there was plans to build, you know, the monorail, elevated monorail going all the way up to Ballard, and then that of course all fell through when they realized that the financing was such that it was going to cost billions and billions of dollars when it was all told, but. Um, and I, I, I told the story last week, but when I worked at the Museum of History and Industry, um, this is probably almost exactly 20 years ago, we spent a lot of time in conversation with the monorail authority because the sad thing was that new monorail system meant that uh, the old Seattle monorail had to go away. I mean, they, it always seemed like it would have been a much more, I don't know, I, I think the financing stuff would have fallen through regardless. But if they'd been able to keep the Century 21 original monorail in that system, um, it would have been much more palatable. It's, it seems sad to sort of, after about 50 years, just get rid of, or I guess only 40 years at that point, get rid of what had been the, you know, the, the impetus for bringing monorails to the Northwest in the first place. Um, so anyway, I, I, and I, I, think I've, I think I've said before on this show, I know I've, I've said before on other radio programs that I voted yes I think every single time on the monorail because I like the idea of um, sitting on a monorail and uh, just being able to um, watch, look at Christmas lights every year. If only if I overrode it once a year. Oh, I see Ted Beaner is joining us. Hang on a second. Hey, Ted, hang on just a second, okay? Uh, this is a live radio production on the fly, the one-person, one-man band. Let's see if we can get Ted on the phone here. Ted Beaner, can you hear me? I can. Ah, terrific. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Um, when I heard that uh, weather forecast a couple of days ago, actually, I saw some of the long-range models even, I don't know, 10 days ago where it said it was going to be in the 90s you know, this weekend. And it didn't quite get that, that hot, but it's close. But I thought uh, one of the few people I know who really knows his weather and his history is Ted Beaner. So I thought I'd reach out to you, just get a little, uh, spend a little time talking about the, um, what we're experiencing right now and if it has any precedent and if it's, if it's if these like the heat dome from a couple of years ago is related or that really hot weather from back in 2000 was it 2009 i can't remember the last time but where where does this current little spell of hot weather fit into the fit into weather history around here well first of all this weekend SeaTac airport had record high temperatures both saturday and sunday both of those records were set in 2018 so it's kind of reflective that we can get this warm uh, even in the month of May. And our new record, Saturday SeaTac hit 86, uh, today hit 89. So it bumped those records from 2018 by one degree. Hmm. But one important thing out of all of this, and, and I I use this in uh, a FEMA course that I, I co-teach, and it's called Climate Adaptation for Emergency Managers. And I've looked at some studies that other people have done And I think we're kind of experiencing it ourselves. And that is, since the 1950s, our summers, not just in the Pacific Northwest, but around the globe, are now three weeks longer than they used to be. Hmm. In fact, uh, since the 50s, we've expanded our summers on average 4.2 days per decade. And we're witnessing it now. We witnessed it last year. We witnessed it with the heat dome in late June of last year. Um, And I just mentioned 2018 is another year. It's coming earlier, and it's also finishing later. Remember last year in mid-October, on a Sunday, we hit 88 degrees Hmm. at SeaTac Airport. So we're seeing this happening, and I think that's involved with our now longer wildfire season. Yeah. 
So um, what's the, the long-term prognosis? Another, another decade, another 4.2 days of summer? Well, that appears to be the trend because that study went from 1950 to 2010, and we know that the next decade uh, was even warmer, was one of the warmest ever on record around the globe, let alone here. And we're continuing that trend now in our current decade. So, you know, you mentioned a couple other things I might point out. Last year at SeaTac Airport, we had 13 days of 90 degrees or better. Ugh. And that topped, <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, used to I hate this weather, only, Ted. Ted, I hate this weather. I, don't, I, can't, I can't be impartial about the weather. I hate this heat. It's terrible. Anyway, continue. But, and, and you're a native, and I completely yeah. understand that. Uh, you know, years ago, we only had 15% of homes that had air conditioning. That number today has grown to 44%, primarily from people adding air conditioning to their homes, or a lot of the new building has included that. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to point out, last year we had 13 days. The previous record, and it happened twice, in 2015 and in 2009, were 12 days of 90 or better. We used to be just three days on average. Wow. And we're just continuing to increase that. And you mentioned in uh, 2009, you might remember on July 29th, we hit a new all-time record high of 103 degrees. Yep. I remember stepping and outside and feeling my eyeballs searing in that really dry heat. I remember that vividly, oh, yeah. Oh, so do I. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. It was just brutal. And prior to that, uh, we had 100 degrees as our previous record, and that was set in 1994. In fact, I always like this because our all-time record high was 100 and the all-time record low was zero. So it's <laughs> easy to remember, zero and 100. That zero, by the way, is January 31st, 1950. 50, so. yeah. That was but, a, that's, I like records like that. I, 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 I hope we have more fun, cold records like that we can talk about in the near future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just sat through the Pacific Northwest Weather Workshop that was held at NOAA Sandpoint on Friday and Saturday. And, we, and this was, pardon the pun, a hot topic. Uh, we, were, we were discussing what are the trends, and that's what you're trying to do in this segment at this point. Our nights across the state from Spokane to the coast are getting warmer, Ugh. particularly during the winter season. Wow. You're not seeing the – you may see one day that gets down to the 20s or maybe the teens, but overall – you know, they're staying in the mid-30s to mid-40s here locally. And even Olympia is falling into that category. Which it's, it's the coldest spot we have here in western Washington, generally speaking. Mm. Um, so, and I use this with regards to our heat waves. It's not just the heat of the day, but it's also the heat of the night. Yeah. And that is in part because our dew point, the amount of moisture in the air, is higher than it used to be. So we retain the heat that we had during the day, during the night. So we're mm. setting a lot more low temperature records on the high side. Not wow. low, low records, but high, low record temperatures at mm. night. We may experience that here this coming night uh, because it's so warm and we're now increasing our dew points, increasing the amount of moisture in the atmosphere and with that may, may be the case. And you mentioned the, the heat dome, that we had several sessions on that during our recent workshop. Yeah. All right. Well, and you it. might remember on June 26, it hit 102, and then that was on a Saturday. Then on Sunday, it hit 104, and then it peaked at 108 degrees. Imagine erasing the all-time record high by 5 degrees. Crazy. Portland hit 116 <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. (laughs) Eastern Washington, down in the the Central Basin Tri-Cities area, I don't remember the town off the top, new state all-time high temperature of 120 degrees. Just incredible. Uh, And we have not been there ever before. All right. Well, I have to run today. i got one more guest I have to get to from the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. But I hope the next time you come back on the show, we'll be talking about some sort of a destructive windstorm or like high, high heavy rains or like ice and snow and stuff. OK, great chatting with you. Thanks, Ted. Really appreciate you. Have a good night. Thanks for being, joining us on Cascade of History. You're welcome. Bye bye. Good night.
That's Ted Beener, a longtime National Weather Service employee, grew up in Portland, experienced the Columbus Day storm. Uh, always like talking to Ted about weather history. And boy, although the weather heat stuff isn't that fun. And I'm going to grab the phone here and I'm going to see. Hang on a second. Stand by. All right, I'm going to get our next guest on here because we're running close out of time here. Can Hui Fam hear me? Oh, hang on one second. Hui, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, terrific. I, I forgot to press one of the seven buttons I have to press to get the phone on the air here. Um, we're, we're really glad to have you here on Cascade of History joining us tonight. I know um, you're the preservation director of the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. I was chatting with you last week down at the um, announcement of Seattle's Chinatown being added to the list of 11 most endangered properties in the by the National Trust, which is a pretty sort of a exciting and uh, I don't know it's a it's an exciting opportunity for that story to be told better but you mentioned that you guys have a big event coming up next week your vintage Washington event yeah absolutely it's our annual fundraiser for the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation and uh, maybe coincidentally maybe not our co-host will be with the nominators of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's 11 most endangered places listing so our first venue will be at uh, the Wing Luke Museum of the Asian Pacific American Experience. And then from there, we'll move to the Changhua Benevolent Association, which is uh, in part the headquarter of Transit Equity for All. And all three of us, um, you know, nominated the Chinatown International District to uh, the endangered places list. But this Saturday, we're excited to have that annual fundraiser. Uh, And tickets are still on sale. Um, we're excited to continue the story and continue telling um, people about the places that we're trying to save all across the uh, across the state, including the district, as well as other campaigns that we followed, you know, for the past few years even. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this when I saw you at the at the event down at the International District that it's I mean, I, I was a board member on the Washington Trust back in the 1990s for a couple of years. I mean, that's it's probably almost 30 years ago now, or maybe 25 years ago. And in the time that Chris has been the director, Chris Moore has been the director, and the staff like you have joined and come aboard, it's neat to see Washington Trust being so robust, so active, and taking on a real, like, an activist approach to bringing the different parties together who have an, int- an interest in Chinatown International District not getting another, you know, like, kind of a similar to what happened with the interstate freeway being pushed through and then the kingdom being built. And it's sort of, it's, it's neat to see this... Um, I know, very, very active take on, on uh, a preservation projects. So kudos to you guys for, for, for really kind of stepping up on this. And thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. And you, uh, we'll put a link at the Cascade of History uh, Facebook page. But is there a, a, a website where people can get more information about Vintage Washington? Sure thing. The easiest way is to go to preservewa.org slash vintagewa. And uh, it'll take you right there. Tickets are on sale. And we're still uh, excited to share all the most endangered places stories from our state. There's lots to learn, but lots to do as well. Right on. Thanks for all the work you guys do. Hui Pham, Preservation Director from the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Thanks, Felix. Have a good night, everyone. We fam, preservation director for the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation. Wow, what an action-packed show on a hot day and where it's 80, it's actually 80.0 degrees here in the studio. Um, I want to thank Richard Heisler for joining us from Civil War Seattle uh, to tell us about the tours. He'll be, free tours he'll be offering at the Grand Army of the Republic Cemetery on North Capitol Hill on Memorial Day weekend. And Linda Van Nest from the Neely Mansion Association and the archaeology workshops they're offering next weekend. Ted Beener giving us a, a history lesson about the <laughs> 4.2 days of summer we get every decade. So, boy, how many years would it take for the whole year turns into summer? That's kind of scary. Um, and then, of course, Hui Pham, who just was on the phone with us from the Washington Trust for Histor- Historic Preservation, talking about their vintage Washington event coming up next weekend in the International District, which has just been added to the 11 mo- list of 11 most endangered historic places in the United States by the National Trust. Well, gee whiz, thanks for spending the whole hour with us here on Cascade of History. Hope you get to spend a nice cool night here somewhere in your basement or somewhere with your air conditioning on or your heat pump or whatever you have. Um, We'll be back next weekend with another live hour of Cascade of History, jumping all over Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia, trying to find people doing cool things with local history for their communities, for themselves, and bringing everyone together. Um, I'm Felix Bunnell. It's Space 101.1 FM. It's a terrific little radio station that punches far above its weight here from our studios at Sandpoint Historic Naval Air Station, now at Magnuson Park. Good night, everybody.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonnell.